Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for another episode of What the Politics. I'm Emily, and Victoria is here in the studio with me as well. And today's topic is something that Victoria has been working on for a while now, and it's kind of in correlation to a special project she's been doing. So I'm going to let her have the floor and explain what our topic is today and why this is so important to her. So today's topic is going to be about the opioid epidemic, and today we have Attorney General Josh Stein, and I'll let him introduce himself in a minute. But first, basically, this this is kicking off a series of reports where I look at the opioid epidemic in the eastern part of North Carolina, looking at it from a variety of perspectives, not just from someone who is a user and in recovery, but also from an EMT and also from a few sheriff's offices and also from a chemist, um, just looking at it and seeing how the opioid epidemic affects society as a whole. So today's special guest is Attorney General Josh Stein, and I'm going to go ahead and let him introduce himself. Hi, I'm Josh Stein. I'm the Attorney General of North Carolina. And um, one of the things that we did before we, uh, you know, recorded this interview is that we did a little Twitter stalking. And so our personality question for you today is, what museum did you visit this weekend, and what was your favorite thing from that museum? I visited the North Carolina Museum of Art, went out to their outdoor sculpture garden, which is just it's tremendous. It's so beautiful. It's rolling hills, beautiful paths, with sculptures all around. And my favorite part was being with my folks. Uh, my parents are in their 80s and was there with them and my wife and daughter. It was just a very nice visit. Oh, awesome. And so one of the things that we're going to do to start off this interview is kind of just give a little bit of um, uh, explain what the Attorney General's office does. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do, whether you prosecute, with how you do settlements? Just give us a little background about what the what the office does. Sure. As Attorney General, my job is to protect the people of the state in a lot of different ways. The most commonly understood way is the role I play in the criminal justice system. We do prosecute some cases when we get a referral from a local district attorney but that's mainly the job of local DAs. We do handle every criminal appeal in the state. We also supervise the state crime lab that analyzes crime scene evidence, uh, operate the North Carolina Justice Academy, which trains law enforcement officers, and we participate in important criminal justice debates like how to make our criminal justice system fair to all people. Uh, and that's the work of the Task Force for Racial Equity and Criminal Justice that the governor established last summer, which uh, I'm honored to co-chair. We protect consumers, seniors, uh, and uh, taxpayers from fraud. We go after companies that deceive or trick people on helping to lead the national opioid investigation into the drug company that really help to create the crisis that uh, we are seeing today uh, by promoting the overprescription of opioid pain pills. Um, I also um, am leading national efforts to take on robocallers, 
which annoy everybody, but exist to, to target vulnerable people and steal money, steal serious amounts of money, hundreds of millions a year. So uh, that's work we do on consumers. We protect taxpayers by holding healthcare providers that default the Medicaid system accountable. We make sure that our natural resources uh, are clean, the air that we breathe and water we drink, by holding polluters accountable. Uh, and protect folks' fundamental rights, making sure that their right to vote is preserved. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that you mentioned and that what, what we're really here to talk about is this opioid epidemic. Um, when you first started in, in um, an office, how was the opioid epidemic in the state? What, what were some of the parameters? What was going on? Were you surprised? Did you feel overwhelmed? Just kind of give us like the long view of, of your thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I really focused intently on the crisis in 2016 when I was campaigning and I would travel around the state and I would talk to sheriffs and I would say, what's going on in your county? And what I heard was that the jails were being filled with people with addiction and that opioids were the fastest growing problem. And so when I started work in 2017, I immediately tried to tackle it. And the, the problem was worse. Uh, in 2016 than it had been in 2015, which was worse than it had been in 2014 than in 2013. It was a, a dramatically increasing problem. Uh, it started out as a problem dealing with overprescription of pills and people being addicted to the pills and dying of overdose of the pills. But in around 2012, 13, 14, we started to see a real change as people transitioned from using the opioid pills to using heroin, and more and more people were dying of heroin overdoses, and then what led to a dramatic uptick in the mid-teens um, was fentanyl, and that's what's killing people uh, today, is the, the drug dealers are lacing heroin and even the pills with fentanyl, which is incredibly powerful and, uh, and sadly kills. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about kind of like the beginning of, of what you were talking about there when it comes to um, the prescription pills. So there have been a few settlements uh, with what's going on in terms of prescription pills. Can you give us some background about what's happening there? Because we're, we're seeing a lot of um, press releases of the settlements, and of course we're also seeing press releases of drug, drug traffickers getting jailed. But how do... Um, how does the law play a factor when it comes to the doctors who prescribe these pills? Well, I'll talk about the drug companies first okay. because they're the ones who really drove this crisis. Mm -hmm. There were a number of drug manufacturers. The first and probably uh, most notorious is Purdue Pharma, owned by the Sackler family. And they were the ones in the late 1990s that really made a concerted effort to aggressively pitch their pills to high prescribing doctors and to make more money. I mean, they were selling pills that they knew were addictive, that they knew led to an uh, overdose, that they knew led to death uh, in order to make more money. And they succeeded. Uh, they, they sold, they had incredible growth. Uh, but then they weren't the only ones. There were generic drug manufacturers, Malincroft, Teva, uh, there's Johnson & Johnson. So other manufacturers were also selling uh, a vast number of these pills, and the pills were what drove the crisis initially. 
They are also drug distributors. These are the big companies, Amerisource, Bergen, Cardinal, and McKesson. They are the companies that take the drugs from the manufacturer to the pharmacy. So you and I don't ever deal with them as consumers, but we couldn't get our medication without them. And because of the unique role they play in our drug delivery system, the federal government imposes duties on them to ensure that there are not drugs, um, too many drugs being sent to one area. Uh, they're supposed to have systems to identify red flags and to um, stop selling to problem pharmacies. And we allege that they didn't do a good job of that. So there are a number of lawsuits, a number of negotiations and investigations going on with all of these companies I just mentioned. Um, we settled with one uh, manufacturer, Malincroft, which is in bankruptcy, at $1.6 billion, and we will be getting those funds through the bankruptcy in the coming months. Another of the companies, Purdue Pharma, is in bankruptcy, and we are in negotiations with them and their owners, the family, the Sacco family, which had extracted billions of dollars out of the company um, and then left the company to go into bankruptcy. And so I'm not satisfied with Purdue alone making a payment. I believe that the Sackler family must make a substantial payment as well. So those are, uh, that's in negotiations at the moment. And then there's the big distributors in J&J, and we're involved in long-term negotiations with them trying to um, resolve these cases which are immensely complicated because they don't only involve four major companies in 50 states plus the District of Columbia, but they also include literally thousands of local government jurisdictions that have also sued. So it makes coming to an agreement it really challenging, but I'm, I'm working hard I, along with Tennessee. We're leading that effort, and I'm doing everything I can to bring that to resolution. My goal in all of this is to get these companies that made a lot of money off this crisis to help pay to clean it up to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. And those funds would then be used to help abate the crisis, to, to deal with the consequences and help people who are struggling. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's a lot of societal issues when it comes to um, feeding the opioid epidemic. And um, the one that I'm hearing from you right now is greed. Have you noticed any other sort of issues that are kind of fueling the epidemic when it comes to your experience? Well, what led to the proliferation of the pills into our society, and by the way, I mean, the United States had so many more pills prescribed per person than any other industrialized country, like five times more than what Europe prescribed, ten times more than what Japan prescribed. So it was greed that drove the proliferation of prescribing and these pills just kind of circulating in our communities. Um, but what's driving a, a very tragic uptick in overdose deaths in the last year is actually the COVID-19 pandemic. We have worked incredibly hard in the first three years of my term, working with all kinds of groups, law enforcement, healthcare providers, the governor's office, um, people in the re recovery community. We've been working so hard together to stop the increase in overdose deaths and actually have a decrease. We actually had the first decrease in overdose deaths from one year to the next in many, many years. 
and then COVID-19 hit, and all of that dislocation that has affected us, it hits people with addiction that much harder. So things like job loss, isolation, um, messed up schedules, uh, all of that really drives addiction and drug use for people who have that disease. And so we've seen a real big uptick in overdose deaths in the last year, which is very tragic. Mm. And so this opioid uh, special project is something that Victoria has been working on. Um, so I'm curious to know, you know, what are kind of the biggest issues when it comes to this epidemic that are, are making it hard to overcome? Is it the companies? Is it the, um, the manufacturing companies? Or is it, you know, the people struggling the most? What is the, the hardest part about trying to overcome this as an office? Well, when you have something that's deep-seated um, and challenging as addiction is, there isn't a silver bullet answer. It, it requires a really comprehensive approach that focuses on all of the factors that lead to the problem. So we want to have prevention efforts to ensure that no new people become addicted. We changed the law in North Carolina on pill prescribing so that it can, opioids can still be prescribed to people with chronic pain. They can still be prescribed to people with acute pain, but just substantially fewer pills for people with acute pain. And we've seen a, a decrease in the number of pills prescribed in the last couple of years of 33%. So that's a good thing. Fewer pills in circulation means fewer people becoming addicted. We've done public education campaigns to try to raise people's awareness about this disease uh, and to help parents get these pills out of their medicine cabinet so their teenagers can't start messing with them and start the cycle of addiction. We need to do much more work on treatment. Treatment, I think, is one of the greatest um, parts that are lagging. Uh, we need to have more opportunities for people who have opioid use disorder to get health care so they can get well and, and get their life back on track. But a lot of people don't have health insurance. And so the most important thing the state of North Carolina could do, frankly, is to just say yes the federal government's offer to expand Medicaid. We're one of a dozen states that haven't said yes yet. Mm -hmm. You know, the majority of Republican-controlled states have said yes, but not North Carolina. And it's really um, uh, distressing because many lives could be saved if people had a way to pay for treatment. We also have to address the issue of stigma around this disease. It, it is a chronic disease. You know, we have other chronic diseases like diabetes or cancer. Uh, heart disease, which people aren't, and if your sister-in-law has cancer, you will talk to your neighbors about that. But if your sister-in-law has opioid use disorder, a lot of people don't want to talk about it. They think there's something wrong, there's shame, there's, you know, there's something moral failing, and there just isn't. And until we can address the stigma and treat this as the disease that it is, I think a lot of people who know that they have a problem and want to get help are too scared or embarrassed to ask for help. And so that's another thing that we have to tackle. And that, that's really a societal, cultural thing. And things like your podcast can help move the ball. <clears throat> and then enforcement. You know, fentanyl is an exceptionally deadly, illicit drug. 
and there are drug traffickers making millions and millions of dollars bringing this poison, deadly poison, into our state. And the partnership we have with law enforcement to identify those and hold them accountable um, must be strengthened. Uh, and then you know, holding these big drug companies accountable is really important because those billions of dollars can go to pay for a lot of the things that I'm talking about, the treatment services, the recovery services, harm reduction services, which are all about helping people with addiction stay alive. So that the one thing that is certain is the only the person you know will never uh, get clean is the person who is dead. And so our first objective has to keep people alive, and harm reduction strategies can help with that. Sure. And you were talking about prevention measures. So obviously the pandemic for over this past year, has that stalled the prevention efforts in any way? Has that, you know, what has the pandemic done to the progress of trying to control this epidemic and stop this epidemic? I think the greatest problem that the pandemic has presented isn't so much changing what we can do as actors, people and healthcare people and government law enforcement, uh, the recovery community, you know, we're able to still do the things that we were doing before. The challenge is, is our audience, the people who are struggling with addiction, their lives have been turned upside down. And so a lot of people who had experienced progress have now experienced setbacks. And with people, when people use drugs, particularly if they haven't been using for a while, their tolerance is not nearly as high as what it was when they were using. So, for instance, the, the group that experiences the highest mortality rate um, of anybody are people leaving prison because they were addicted before they were arrested. Usually their addiction drives their criminal behavior. They get arrested. They get put in jail. They're still addicted. They haven't been treated for their underlying addiction. They just haven't had access to the drugs. And so when they get out, they go back to using at a very similar rate as to what they used before, uh, and that amount can kill them, particularly because, as I mentioned earlier, there's more fentanyl being used than ever before. And so when people who are at home and they lose their job as a bartender or they, you know, they lose their job at, at a hotel and they're in financial stress. They may be having issues with their loved ones. That's the kind of pressure that leads somebody to use again. And then if they go back and use and the drugs are deadlier and their tolerance isn't what it was, all of that can contribute to the spike in overdose deaths that we've been seeing. And um, one of the things that really caught my interest since I've been um, reporting on this opioid report is how much trafficking has gone online. Um, how does that play a factor in how you prosecute? Are you, are you noticing an increase in, in drug crimes online? Does your office uh, investigate those? How does that look like? It's, it's really hard to stop the flow of fentanyl. Um, it's manufactured in China. It's manufactured in Mexico. A lot of times it's shipped through the mail. Uh, and it's not, it, it's incredibly compact, like just, a brick size of fentanyl is just thousands and thousands of doses. Um, and so it, it's a really challenging issue. But, but working with 
our, our law enforcement on interdiction is a, a very high priority. Um, you know, we work with local law enforcement on, on wiretaps when we are aware of a drug distribution network. And uh, so a lot of this is very uh, hard uh, investigative work, which can take a long time to build a case, but you always want to get as high up on the chain as you possibly can, so you can do as much damage to the network as possible. And we are running up on the on the 20 minute mark here, and I want to be respectful of your time. But yesterday, I was talking to um, an opioid user, and I told her that I'd have this opportunity to talk to you today. And um, I asked her, I was like, are, "Is there anything that you want to bring to light?" I mean, you probably already know this since you've been working with this for the pat for the last couple of years. But one of the things that she kind of wanted to ask, or at least bring to your attention, is um, the push for pro, uh, probation for our first offense over rehabilitation. Um, so that was one of the things that she wanted to kind of see your thoughts on. And then also uh, the lack of resources for women in the state. There are not enough treatment opportunities available to those who need it. So I've talked to a number of judges uh, who say, I would love nothing more than to have a deferred prosecution where I can put the person uh, into a treatment facility where if over the course of the, you know, six months, 12 months, they abide by the terms of the deferred prosecution, uh, you know, they work to get healthy, they start doing their, their job training, they get a job, like, that's what they would rather do, but there simply, particularly in rural North Carolina, are not these treatment facilities available, uh, and it's a, it's a real problem, and this is especially true for women, and it's especially true for teenagers. There are very few treatment facilities available to teens, and, and so uh, this is why I'm focused on two things. One, encouraging our state to accept Medicaid expansion, because if people have health insurance, then they can pay for the treatment, and more treatment will become available. It's a market system. People won't start a business when they cannot get paid for the services they provide. And then the second is trying to secure these uh, billions of dollars from the companies over the coming years that would go to pay for treatment of services from more people here in North Carolina. Sure. And so, you know, for someone like me, an average Joe or one of our listeners, how, if somebody wants to do more or be able to, you know, help with the progress of ending this epidemic, how could somebody go about doing that? What are some ways that you would recommend to people to be aware of this situation and maybe, um, have an eye for what to look out for, things like that? A, a great question, and we have just a really very helpful uh, resource. It's called morepowerfulnc.org, morepowerfulnc.org. And this it's a website that has information for people who, just like you described, they want to understand what is the scope of the problem and what are specific things that I, as an individual, can do. Of course, the first thing you should do is go look in your medicine cabinet and make sure you don't have any leftover pain pills from some prior procedure because those are a magnet to young people looking to mess around and can be the, the spark that leads to someone's addiction. You wouldn't leave a loaded gun in your medicine cabinet. You shouldn't leave these leftover pills there. Um, but there are all kinds of programs for support for people who are in recovery. 
um, helping people get jobs. Uh, if you're a business owner, looking at your employment policies to make sure that you are not making it uh, so that people who are in recovery don't have a chance to get their life back on track. Um, and then if you're a family that has a loved one who is struggling with addiction, or you yourself are struggling with addiction, then the website has concrete information that's available to them to help them on their path toward a better life. Perfect. Thank you so much. So, um, again, we want to be respectful of your time. Those are all the questions that we that we have for you today, unless you want to bring up anything else that the um, Attorney General's office is doing, anything you want to bring to light to the people of Eastern North Carolina or North Carolina in general? It, this is just a heartbreaking disease that has devastating impact on people who are afflicted by the families and loved ones who live through it with almost as much pain as the person who has addiction. And then, of course, the, the communities that suffer the economic and social consequences uh, of widespread addiction and overdose deaths. And so it is a heartbreaking issue that we all have to do our part in trying to uh, tackle. And, and when we do that, we will save more lives, and more lives will um, be led free of addiction where people make the decision of what they want to do when they wake up in the morning based on what makes them happiest and not uh, trying to find a way to, to get that morphine molecule into their body, which is unfortunately the fate of too many thousands of North Carolinians. Well, thank you so much. Those are all the questions, and this has been quite the pleasure talking to you. Well, thanks for your interest in this really most important topic. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of What the Politics, and be sure to keep an eye out for the special opioid report, which will start airing episodes next week at WNCT.com. Remember, you can find What the Politics on Spotify, Apple, and at WNCT.com in the podcast network.